everyone. I just wanted to quickly mention that in the hand, I make an error about how deep the stacks are pre-flop. After a little bit of discussion, we end up correcting the error, but I wanted everyone to be clear that the players are 500 big blinds effective, not 50 big blinds effective going into this hand. Thanks very much. Enjoy the episode. Hello, James. Hello, Jack. James, we have a fantastic guest today, and we just kind of went through this, but I'll just ask you the same question. How long do you think it's been since we had this guest on the podcast? Um, we we already, it's uh, darn it, five years, right, or something? Yeah, isn't that crazy? I know we're getting to our 200th episode, but I never really put together the fact that we've actually been doing this thing for almost six years now. Um, and these guys have been doing it even longer, which is even more impressive. I think that they probably have a lot more episodes than we do um, because, you know, we just have our own pace. Let's call it that. <laughs> um, we're really happy to have a repeat guest and his counterpart available with us this time. Uh, we have the poker guys. Guys, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Uh, this is Grant, the one who was here before. So I've, you know, I know the territory. I feel safe. I'll try to lead Jonathan through it uh, and make sure that he does okay. This isn't the 200th episode. I thought we were coming on for the 200th episode celebration. I'm not. I'm. I'm not here for this, man. <laughs> what is this about, Jonathan? We, we haven't released the 200th episode, and we've done a. Uh, it's sort of we're just throwing together a bunch of episodes to sort of make it special you could be so. on the 200th episode if you want to be. do you guys want to be on the 200th episode i want let me ask you this you want to be <laughs> yeah, save this one save this one do you want to be one part of many for the 200th episode or do you want to be your own special episode i guess i want to be my own special episode <laughs> don't give him that choice don't give him so much agency that's not a good idea i want music can we rename the podcast jonathan levy does that sound like a good yeah. idea to everybody else? Just hands. Sounds great to me. Just hands with the poker guys. <laughs> Jack and James. <laughs> New name. Maybe Thank we you. could do like kind of like a some spin-off podcasts. Like I could do one with Grant. Maybe Jack does one with Jonathan. You know, mix it up a little bit. Could there could there we be could combat a, involved? Okay. <laughs> we could do a whole we, season kind of explore yeah. different character relationships. Yeah, we could do we could call it just guys or poker hands. I don't know. I was thinking at least the one with me, me and me and Jack. That's like terrible ours, podcast, by the way. Jack, maybe ours could be called Murder Island. <laughs> <laughs> Jonathan's in a weird mood today. We apologize. I want to point out one thing, though. When when James was assigning roles of who was going to be on whose podcast, he was the only one who was picking who to be with, and he picked me. I just want to point that out. Yeah. A smart guy. I, mean, <laughs> I want to do Murder Island over here. Okay, fair enough. So I think we're talking about a hand today that actually took place on Murder Island. Yeah, that's right. Um, and the two like potential murderers or murderees were, you might not have heard of these people. Um, <laughs> I feel like that's a poker guy's joke. <laughs> Sorry. Phil Helmuth and Daniel Negreanu. Who, uh, do they have results? 
Um, <laughs> yeah, I think one of them's one. like Canadian, but he lives in Nevada. It's a little confusing. Oh, so the Hendon mob probably is listing him as multiple people and it's hard to figure out like yeah. actually has results. Okay. We've been through that before. Jonathan has that issue on Hendon, actually. Actually, yeah, I do. <laughs> you know, you know, the cool thing about these two guys is um Grant hates one of them. Yeah. And um both of them have been angry at us at different times, Grant. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. That is true. Uh Daniel was actually on the podcast in uh a very early just hands episode. Uh, yeah, Daniel was our big get. Um, ours, ours too. And then we gave up. <laughs> he was our biggest get we ever had, too. But also, it didn't increase our listens really at all. No one cared. Was, yeah. <laughs> Jack just said we gave up when we have. <laughs> Never mind. Um, no, yes. we didn't give up. But, you know, once once we had Negrano, it was sort of like, I kind of like. I like doing episodes with guests, but I also I don't think we want to be on this sort of like, let's get the biggest guest we can every time. I like just doing episodes with people that, you know, I like to talk to, who I think are fun. Um, and I didn't think the Daniel episode was very fun. Uh, you know, it was more just like a sitting through like a Daniel lecture of sorts. It was just, it, it wasn't a good podcast. I don't know what to say. I, I really didn't enjoy it. I don't think it's, I think it's one of our worst episodes ever. Wow. Just in case you didn't actually make the cut with that, I recorded it. I'm going to release it to the world. <laughs> We're tweeting that shit out <laughs> at Daniel Negreanu. <laughs> it wasn't Daniel's, I mean, it really wasn't Daniel's fault. We just, you know, normally we like to really kind of get deep and we're willing to sort of challenge each other's thoughts and be critical. Uh, and it was just like, and you're saying Daniel isn't willing to do any of those things. No, sure. <laughs> it just felt, it just felt weird to be like, yeah. Well, he's you know, also like coming on a podcast with like two 20 year olds, right. Who just kind of just started playing poker. Like, I mean, it, we were, it, it was a couple of years into the show. Um, yeah. it was in 2017. So almost a year after we had Grant, for those of you who are trying to put the put the puzzle together. Anyways, so we gave up on trying to get, um, you know, really high profile guests. So now we just have Grant and Jonathan. <laughs> yeah. I mean, <laughs> reasonable and true. It's, fair. it's actually true. Fair. And, I, you know, we feel you on Negrano. It kind of felt like he was doing us a favor by being on our show. Like we, we owed him something almost in a way. So we, um, we kind of, he said some stuff that was like pretty inflammatory, but not that was, us. that was not about us or yeah. it was about other people, but it, it all, it all, like you guys said, it felt kind of like he was holding court um, yeah. a little bit. And yeah, we, we were a little intimidated probably yeah. back, back in the day. So, so, so I actually agree with you that that makes it worse when the, the hosts aren't going to be willing to get down and dirty, basically, with yeah. their guests. So, and that's, that's on us, and probably that was on you, of course, not on him. You're right. It was destined to be what it was, <laughs> and it was what it was destined to be. We'll leave it at that. I say that all the time. <laughs> all right. So back to Murder Island. Back to Murder um, Island. Um, yeah. You you guys have done a lot of Phil Hellmuth hands 
um, and on your show. <laughs> Any trends? <laughs> yeah. Uh, the trend is, uh, it's not a trend, but more of a ratio. I'd say like 85% of the time we hate what he does poker wise, not personally. That's a hundred percent of the time we hate what he does personally. Um, and the 15% of the time that he does well, we kind of think it was a mistake. Like he didn't mean to. That can't be always true, right? There's got to be a few times when we thought that was actually a really, really nice play. Yeah, I think, a few, I think, a few yeah, times. A yeah. few times. I think I think you're being a little un, unkind, which is you know fair enough. You, yeah. you do hate that guy, but um, <laughs> but like one of the things that I've liked about him recently, I just want to say this because as we're about to get into him, where we're likely to critique him, uh, is like in the heads up match he played against Antonio. Uh, he was especially one of the earlier one of the, I think the first or the second one. He was really showed a willingness to go against his image at least a little bit and make big bluffs, make check raises on the river as bluffs, which you would think you could probably always fold against Wilhelmuth and, mm -hmm. and be profitable. Uh, and that really wasn't necessarily the case. And he really took advantage of his, of Antonio's image of him. And I was impressed by that. And to, to say something positive about Phil, it, 100% of the time I am entertained by his hands, not just how he talks and acts, but how he plays. He does, he plays differently, which is I, genuinely, I think good for poker. So I can say that is a, a theme that I find fun about his hands. Yeah. And, you know, he, in his own way, he has absolutely found success, you know, and yeah. while we, we find fault with some of the ways he goes about it, both personally and professionally, he's also four and <laughs> in these heads up matches now. I mean, the Negreanu one, he got pretty lucky. He had to, he had to get pretty lucky a lot once he was down to like 4% of the chips, but still four and is, is pretty cool. And I guess it's still stochastic and probably is what's going on, but I have to tip my cap at least a little bit to him. Yeah, I'm, you know, my disposition is to be very contrarian. So I'm, there's part of me that really wants to find a way in which uh, Helmuth is this like amazing strategic genius in like the modern poker era. Uh, and so I definitely have viewed a lot of his hands like through that kind of optimistic lens. And it just, I just get beaten back every single time where maybe through like the turn decision, it's like, wow, this could be a really amazing play. And then something comes through on a river. And it's like, oh no, now it couldn't possibly have been this line of thinking. So this is just a punt. Uh, and that seems like a natural inclination to want to root for a guy like Helmuth, who is not trying to play solver perfect in an era of solvers where poker is no limit hold'em in particular is becoming essentially solved. And the, the more you can memorize, the better you'll do against elite competition. It's a nice romantic idea to think that there can be some sort of special humanity involved in the game still. And Phil Helmuth does allow for that as a possibility with his continued success. Yeah, the person who like, we really needed to sort of carry that torch is his opponent in this match. And he's really done exactly the opposite. Um, to my chagrin, maybe not to his sort of the chagrin of his personal finances, but you know, I, I miss like look at your opponent, look him up and down, a little speech play action, uh, that era of Negrano poker, instead of very kind of passive game theory ish play, which I find kind of boring from, or at least Negrano's style. I don't always find it boring, but. I think some people have different approaches to it um, in lean more or less aggressive or passive. I, I just see a lot of passivity recently from the Grano. 
I mean, I, I agree with you. I think Negrano finds it boring, too. He's talked about that when he was playing against Doug Polk, about how he felt sort of like there wasn't that many decisions to make anymore because it had already sort of all figured out, and he was just sort of following the plan, whatever, you know, like the specific plan for that hand based on the board and the sizing and the this and the that, whether you're supposed to call, fold, or raise. And, you know, he's just you're just following a chart to some degree. Now, I know he's not doing RTA, so it's, it's all got to be in his head. And there's obviously he put in a lot of study to lose 1.2 million, but fair enough. Like he did, imp- he was, I'm not saying he isn't very, very good at that now. Um, but like, yeah, it's, it's, I think it's boring to watch. I think it's boring to play. And it's possibly going to be the death of, of poker if, if we don't find something to save it <laughs> somehow. Well, I'm finding I'm still finding a lot of good action, fortunately. Uh, maybe the death of like fun poker on TV, though. Yeah, that's a better way to put it because there's always going to be good two five five ten action. Like there's always going to be players who are not playing GTO in those games for sure. Oh my god, yeah, it's <laughs> full of fish. <laughs> and you can look at what Helmuth has done, which is to say like surround himself with like really good private games. You know, uh, where I'm sure his, my guess is he's actually playing a pretty different style in those games. In that I'm sure he's sort of, I, I have to imagine if like, like a lot of your income comes from being kind of like a celebrity type player in private games with high net worth individuals, that you would want to be sort of wary about the way you talk about poker and play poker in televised settings. I mean, that makes sense. That, that makes some sense. Um, I think I think the thing that reveals that Helmuth's style is truly what he is is when he's chasing bracelets because that's what he cares about the most in the world. And we see in his tournament play, he makes the same type of decisions as he does in cash games. And I don't think he's playing those tournaments for the benefit of, of those high rollers that he's going to try to bilk later. But maybe he is. If he's really playing advanced 40 chess, maybe. I mean, that would be really cool if this was all, you know, part of the game from him, you know, for him. And it was, a, but I, that is giving him a lot of credit, man. And Not, I don't want to say 40 chess, like it's all calculated, just that like there is some sort of intuition around like, uh, like how is this, like, do I, do I really want to like do this um, and have the people I'm playing with potentially see it? I mean, but he he abuses rich people on TV. Yeah, like you know? Bill, like Bill Perkins. Yeah, like people like that. Yeah, he said you know he says things that are deeply insulting to them, and so I I don't know if I buy it. I think I think he's just who he is and can't can't help himself. Yeah, I think that's that's gotta be the most likely um, explanation. So back to Murder Island. Yeah, what the hell happened? <laughs> so they're they're playing the high stakes duel round one on Poker Go, and it's for a um, hundred grand, which is you know significant for both of them. I don't know if they have all their own action. They could, and um, it looks like the blinds are. Looks like they're. 50 big blinds deep at this point, and stacks are pretty even. Um, Daniel has 52K, and Helmuth has 47K. Uh, can you guys 
catch me up on like what's the format of this competition because I didn't watch it. Yeah, so basically they there's an opportunity after each heads up match for the players to have a rematch for twice the stakes and there's some kind of prize for i guess the winner who comes out on top at the end but i mean they're also like playing like kind of a it's like a kind of a tournament format because the blinds keep going up um in each of the heads up match as well okay yeah so helmuth has Queen of Clubs, Four of Hearts um, on the button, small blind, and he does his Helmy thing and elects to call. What do you guys think? I mean, it depends on the overall strategy of a heads up match. A heads up match is kind of different than anything else in that it has kind of a life of its own. And perhaps he's trying to develop a holistic strategy that involves a lot of button limping and, and, seeing a lot of hands in position. I, I don't hate it that much. I mean, like I might prefer a raise, but overall I can't really say that I, I choose one over the other. I don't think you can fold this hand. It's clearly not yeah. a fold. I mean, he's limping, as you guys said, a lot of the time. And with, with a wide variety of hands, including monsters, I think it's totally fine to limp this hand on the button um, as long as he's doing it with a bunch of other stuff too, like Grant's saying. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely better if he thinks he has an edge on grinding post flop so <laughs> you can take with that like what you will he definitely thinks he has an edge on the post flop whether he does or not is a different question but like if, if we're only assuming the play is good or bad based on his perspective he probably thinks he's 94 times as good as negrano post flop would be my guess if you were to make an assessment yeah i think even the fish in the pot is like a good idea <laughs> taking a limp heavy strategy makes a lot of sense yeah Alrighty. Um, it also like it kind of throws another wrinkle for Negreanu to kind of have to work out. Like, is the limp range how different is that from his raising range? How is he constructing that? And you know, Negreanu is used to playing against, um, or you know, the last match he played, whatever twenty five thousand hands against, he was up against an opponent that was mostly raising. Um, and yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Just maybe, maybe working in some limps in there, like kind of complicates things a little bit more for Negrano. So yeah, maybe it's good. I think the, um, uh, the stack size is also important here where if, uh, let's say, first of all, is there an ante? No. Okay. Well, if, uh, Helmuth opens to, let's say, like 2.25, and then faces a three bet of seven. It's a tough spot to four bet um, with SPR. And so I think the most, like, a, you could make a case that having a lynch strategy at this stack depth is possibly more important because you kind of want to be the person putting in that uh, three bet versus the person being three bet just because stacks work out where it's a very awkward spot for four betting. 
And so the three better is gonna be able to go post-flop with a range advantage more frequently. That's pretty interesting. I don't um, know if Phil's thinking about all that, but I think that is an <laughs> excellent point. Like I, I, my guess is Phil's doing this at 100 big blinds deep and 150 big blinds deep and 200 big blinds deep also. But, but I really like your point about uh, wanting to be the guy to make the last aggressive action pre-flop in a way that still works for your stack size. Yeah. Negreanu has 10-7 of clubs in the big blind and he likes to raise to 300. That seems fine to me. Um, I, you know, I don't know well, too much to say about it really, but yeah, he has a suited hand. It's somewhat connected. It has some playability. I don't know that he's necessarily getting like too many dominated hands to fold really like, you know, like 10, nine is calling probably like, right. And any, any better 10. Um, yeah, I don't know, maybe like King seven folds, but maybe it doesn't. I mean, yeah, probably doesn't. So what do you guys think? Well, I think we're doing this hand and Phil Helmuth has queen four. So he's probably not folding King seven would be my guess. Um, <laughs> we're talking about though, if Negreanu raises, right? He did raise. Yeah. 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 Right. Oh, and your point is Phil's going to call, right? Yes. Oh, yeah. Okay. I see. You Did you think that. the hand was going to end free flop? I was trying to work it out. I'm sure the point of view of the listener, <laughs> okay. unlike you, the, the omnipotent watcher from Marvel Comics, bald and on the moon. So you thought that the just hands guys were foolish <laughs> enough to bring a hand where it's a limp and then a raise and then a fold. That's what you thought. Honestly, what I thought was you weren't really listening and then said the thing and didn't realize that Negrano It turns raise. out that you're the one who's not listening. Hold on. I'm, I'm, I'm confused. What? Give me the blinds one more time. Um, fifty-one hundred. Aren't they five hundred a thousand? No, he made it three hundred. No, 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 he said three hundred, but oh. there was, but they're only forty or they're only fifty blinds deep, I and they see. have. 40 so, are they five hundred blinds deep, James? Oh no! I was listening. <laughs> they couldn't be five hundred blinds deep, could they? <laughs> I mean, they could. <laughs> <laughs> Well, if they're 500 blinds deep, this it's a different situation. <laughs> they're, they're, they're not 500 blinds deep, guys. 52K. I mean, we should be able to figure this out. I, listen, I'm almost sure because I know what happens on the flop, and the sizing makes it almost have to be that the blinds are 500,000. Like, think about the sizing on the flop. So, so James, are the blinds 500,000 potentially? No. I don't know oh, who to damn. believe anymore. <laughs> this is a classic Murder Island plot, I have to say. All right. We, is, uh, we, we were just we talking on our some... podcast about the whole Berenstein Sorry, Bears guys. thing. I don't know if you guys know about that, but yeah, this is like I... a situation. <laughs> You're saying this might be like a Mandela effect kind of thing going on? Yeah. Yeah. Some, some sort of multiverse situation happening here where different versions of the hand exist. I think there are 500 blind deep. What? Is there... No. What? Do you have a visual? <laughs> <laughs> is it... <laughs> Do you need I'm a second right opinion? Okay, I'm, I'm looking. Hold on. I'm looking right now. Okay. You know what? 
they are 500 blinds deep. <laughs> they are. They're not 50 blinds deep. I still like Jack's point, though. If like you are 50 blinds deep. <laughs> yeah, in the <laughs> world where you're 50 blinds deep. That's... So, so, yeah, they're, they are 500 blinds deep. Okay. Wow, that's really different. Yeah, it is different. Well, at least we don't have to start again. <laughs> this is, yeah, this is going great. Uh, okay. So now that we're 500 blinds deep, I would say I like both players' actions less. <laughs> um, I mean, I guess the ground just must think that, like, there's too many folds after the limp across the various streets. To me, like you want to have a more precise answer about like which street is it where you get the folds. It's probably not pre-flop, so is it on the flopper to turn. I think the more specificity you have around that, the more profitable your play is going to be overall. But I think we have to go to the flop with the assumption that Daniel thinks uh, Phil is just going to be folding too much after he limps, because I think that it would be hard to make this raise thinking that out of position you're just going to get way too much value with 10-7 of clubs. It could also be that 10-7 suited is famously Negreanu's favorite hand, and he still has a little bit of wanting to, you know, be the old school Negreanu in him, and he decided he's going to raise because it's his his famous favorite hand. That is it his favorite just, hand? Yeah. That yeah, I mean, that shouldn't be discounted. Well, then this looks like a just a limp <laughs> raising your favorite hand to me. <laughs> Yeah. So we're starting out with some strong strategic play. All right. <laughs> Phil calls. I don't want to. I don't want to talk about it. Yeah, he could. He could fold. Maybe. I think call is fine. Um. And the flop is two of clubs, four of clubs, two of hearts. So, Ngano has a flush draw, and Phil has, um, paired as four, and he also has the queen of clubs. So. He has the kind of backdoor club draw if it comes running clubs. Negreanu bets 400 with 10-7 of clubs um, into the pot of 600. So two-thirds pot. Seems normal and fine to me. Nothing to, yeah. nothing to see here. It's a good flop. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I like they didn't go a third pot. I think two-thirds is, you know, it's cool. Yeah, maybe there's you're like really deep. Yeah, maybe there's more. You know, I haven't really looked at these spots too much, but maybe there's more like kind of equity to deny that's that it's possible to deny on like this board that you know neither player really connects with very much, and so the advantage is going to be with the three better. Um, yeah. Um, anything else to say, Grant and Jonathan? I uh, I expect a call from Phil Hellmuth. I'm gonna. I'm gonna... Uh, you haven't seen him play paired boards. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. This feels like a or flops a raise to me from Phil. Okay. Well, maybe he will raise then. <laughs> nice. <laughs> no, I I have like we've done a few hands from Phil on paired boards, and I think he does play them quite aggressively so that's yeah, that's think, my read on phil i think this is a tough spot to raise because it's just 
I think it's just a very advantageous board for Daniel. Um, so I, I think he could end up actually facing some three bets here. But yeah, if I'm, I would guess, I just have seen Helmuth really err on the side of getting protection. So I would think he would raise here. I mean, I, I hear that and perhaps that is what Phil does. I, I actually haven't seen the hand yet and uh, it's fun to go along without knowing what's what's going to happen. But like, I just got to point out the obvious flaw in this play if he's going to raise. Like, it becomes what we call a game theory disaster a lot of the time. Now, Negreanu may, in fact, sometimes call with a worse hand, but it, it's going to have reasonable equity against Queen 4 no matter what. Like, it's not a good expected value play against the calling range. And we're chasing away so much action that we want to have in the future. I know that there's a lot to protect against, but if we have any sense of distribution in game theory as Phil, which I imagine at this point he does, he can make those decisions using those tools later on. And it just feels like raising is not accomplishing the right type of things. It's only accomplishing protection. I also wonder about even protecting a pot this size when we're this deep, like why? Why do we need to, is this pot so valuable? I mean, we have top pair, sure. Um, we can charge clubs, although we have a club in our hands. So we'd be way less thinking that Daniel has them, although he happens to. Um, I think if we raise to a reasonable amount, we are going to get called by the ace king, ace jacks of the world and things like that for, you know, one street maybe. But then that's it. I just don't, if, if this pot was more significant, I could understand the idea of protecting it more. But we're so deep. It just is like, this isn't, right now it's still a meaning, like winning right now doesn't have a lot of value, I don't think. Yeah, I mean, I, that's that's definitely true. I, I do think that like, because of the size of the pot, none of our decisions are going to be that consequential, like in the context of the whole match. And I think if we're going to raise, we can maybe make a smaller raise, kind of leverage our positional advantage and get some cheap folds, which might be useful. Um, I also think that you would you would want to try and consider how often Daniel was going to bet hands like queen high here. Because I think that in a heads-up match, a lot of players will check those types of hands. And so you're not, like, you want to keep in like queen X because you have a chance of dominating that hand and winning a really big pot, which is nice. But if you don't expect those hands to see bet, then... I don't think that there's as much reason to keep overcards around. Because I think a lot of the overcards are going to be more of the not great, but higher than a four. I mean, obviously, almost everything's higher than a four. But like your six sevens, six eights, those types of hands, seven eight, I think those are going to see that very, very frequently. Yeah, I, I could see also like Negrano will barrel on a queen a lot of the time if we just call here. Um, so. Yeah, I, I I prefer call, but I don't know. I I don't think it can be so so bad. Um. Yeah, he he raises to nine fifty, um, facing the four hundred. So, um, kind of a like two and a half x rays, a little bit less. So kind of a small raise, like we were talking about. And, I mean, what do you guys think from Negreanu here? Like he could. He could like three bet. Well, if he's aware of Phil Hamid's reputation that you're referring to, where he raises paired boards all the time, I kind of love a three bet at this stack depth that gives us a chance to win the pot right now against all of the random hands that Phil's choosing to do this with. 
he puts Phil in a bad spot with the hands that aren't really supposed to be in his raising range, in my opinion, like fours. And he has significant equity against almost everything with the 10-7 of clubs. So I actually do like a three bet out of position. I think it has to be somewhat big-ish, maybe 3,000-ish, maybe 3,500. Um, but that does feel like the best play in this situation. I don't think Phil has that many deuces available in his range, like as a percentage of his entire range. Mm-hmm. So I, and I don't expect a four bet from all, almost anything. So we almost always get to see the turn anyway. So I think for all those reasons, I, I do think a three bet is the best course of action here. I, I think a three bet's interesting. Um, some stuff to keep in mind, or Negrano may be keeping in mind is I wonder how many bluffs Phil has here. So he's got a lot of medium strength hands because not only is he raising necessarily paired boards, I wasn't aware of that, but I certainly know in the Antonio matches. Uh, so when he's playing heads up, if he flops a pair, he's raising the flop most of the time. So Negrano, I assume, watches those, watch those matches and should know that, which means while Phil doesn't have very many bluffs, he has all these medium strength hands like Grins is referring to, which, and you could almost certainly win the pot with a three bet against all of them, which is not a bad outcome. And if we get called, that's an okay outcome too. Yeah, I'm a big fan of the three bet. Um, I, I like the big three bet in theory. Um, if I'm sort of putting myself in this sort of leveling war, I would maybe like even think about a three bet that's not small, but is also not that big. Um, I sort of lost track of what the actual sizes are. <laughs> we sort of waffled on who's playing for what amounts, but. Um, do we, do we want to, there are 500 I, I, big lines deep and there are 600 going into the flop. Negranu bet 400, Phil raised to 950. Yeah, I'm thinking like something like 2600, um, where I think Phil, there will be, Phil, I'm anticipating would have an awareness that he's perceived to be pair heavy. And so I think if it looks like Negranu is kind of more value targeting than trying to blow him off a pair, he might have more success. But is Daniel, I think, a big goal here? I'm thinking forward to like the turn and trying to get some dominating club draws, which could be raising in Phil's spot, uh, to fold. So like if we could get something like queen five of clubs to fold the turn after we three bet and then barrel big, um, that could be hugely valuable for Daniel. So that would be a big part of my motivation for three betting is really about cleaning up our equity on the turn for the times where we specifically river a flush. So did we get the three bet, James? Uh, no. Damn. Unfortunately. Yeah, I, uh, I I'm like having four people all pulling for you to three bet. <laughs> I, it seems hard to get better flushes to fold this deep um like if we made it like if there's 6k kind of in the pot going into the turn there's still 40k behind like what kind of sizing you think negrano could use to get the dominating flushes to fold like maybe 10k or something like overbet 
I think even a pot size bet's really hard to call with like a jack or queen high plus draw. Yeah. Phil is pretty famously tight too, and the board's paired, and he yeah. sees ghosts under the bed all the time. So I, I think I think I agree that a pot size bet or somewhere close to it, eighty percent of the pot, five k or something like that, is probably going to fold out. I mean, not the nut flush draw certainly, but better flush draws than we have the jack high, the queen high. I think I think that'll work. All right, I I feel good about um, yeah our three bet decision. And I, I'm proposing that we go to a heads up match against Phil, but he lets us all consult together before uh, we make each decision. Do you think he'd go for that? I don't know. Jonathan's actually challenged Phil to heads up matches on our podcast before, and we've received no response. So <laughs> well, you heard it here again. <laughs> he cowers in fear. <laughs> if Phil's a just hands listener, not a poker guys listener. Yeah. Oh, you heard of the challenge. People talk nice things about himself. He would be wise not to listen to us. I don't think. I don't think he's interested in our stuff. That's fair. Yeah. Hashtag positivity. You guys seen the uh, the Queen's Gambit? Yeah. I'm imagining like Phil playing four heads up matches against us. Like we're all at death. A simultaneous exhibition. Unlike on that show, he would lose all four of them. And you would blame the dealer for each each time. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, <laughs> Negreanu, yeah, Negreanu just calls the the raise, and you got to turn King of Diamonds. I don't know. Maybe is there a case for any a lead from Negreanu? Like, I don't think he really has too much King X, but I mean, probably has Ace King could have like all the king queen in this line or a lot of it maybe um so i think he does have more kings and phil helmuth hasn't totally polarized but i mean it's heads up so the like everything's just so much more diluted i feel like i don't know yeah any any case for a lead on this card guys what do you think well you want to also add in uh, king x of clubs into negranu's potential range there right you may not want to lead he may want Phil to keep barreling against that type of strength. I'm not sure. Um, I think there is a case to lead against a player like Phil, who's going to have a, a lot of random, weird middle of the pack hands in his raising range when we have 10 high and only one card to come. Mm-hmm. From a practical perspective, it's, it feels a little more natural to actually lead than not. But from a story perspective, it gets a little funky and weird. I also just wonder if we're going to get any folds out of Phil. Like, if we're leading the turn, we should be cognizant that we're usually going to have to bluff river too, or bet the river. Maybe we get there sometimes. But like, if we're trying to get him to fold, we're going to have to bluff the river a lot. If he's got a, if he's got a four, he's got any kind of reasonable draw. I guess we could size it really big too. Um, it's a weird, weird line, like Grant's saying with this from a story I think, point of view. I think if we're going to take an aggressive action on the turn, it, it comes with a little bit of hope. The hope being that Phil bets. I, I think I like a check raise a lot better than a lead. Mm-hmm. Um, just leverage it a lot more, make it more significant based on the stack depth and give ourselves a real shot to fold out the stronger medium strength hands in Phil's range. Uh, and definitely a shot to fold them out on the river if we miss. So I don't mind check call here um, because I I do think Phil 
checks a lot of like protection type raises on a turn like this. It's not a guarantee, which is why we're obviously never check folding. I think the problem with like playing aggressively is that we still have to contend with the fact that there's twos um, and a lot of the twos raise the flop. And so I, I think check raising, if I was really confident the four X would barrel, I love the check raise. Um, I think the lead is reasonable because we can lead call, but lead call is a little dangerous um, just because I think it's hard to play rivers very profitably with this hand since we are dominated by some club draws. So it's like hard to sort of check raise the river on like a flush against Phil Helmuth. Uh, so since we sort of, I felt like the our best chance to try and get Phil to do a lot of folding was on the flop. So I'm comfortable just trying to like play this one cheap, but the more Daniel's confident that the four is barrel, then I think the check raise starts to look good. And I, I think the lead is also very reasonable. All right, so it's impossible for Negrani to make a mistake on this street, it seems like. I, I mean, I do think the check raise is rather risky and you have to have, it's like a high degree of confidence type of play where you have to be pretty, you have to have a good degree of certainty about what your opponent's doing, in my opinion. I mean, the board is a little wet, so maybe it gives us more belief that Phil's going to barrel a four. I don't know if Phil is, I, I don't remember what happens on the turn, so I don't know if Phil's barreling a four or not um, in this spot. Um, but, you know, there but that wetness, we actually have two clubs also. So in theory, you know, that would mean we're blocking Phil having a club in his hand, which means maybe he's more likely to barrel as well. I don't know if he's actually considering any of this stuff in that Phil Hummuth sized brain of his. Um, <laughs> wow. <laughs> what? That's accurate. It's yeah, a Phil Hummuth sized true. brain. It is. Um, <laughs> yeah. One nice, one nice thing about check raising that we haven't, or that at least I didn't say anything about was the fact that Phil can just be like, raising with crap and then barreling. And I think we, when that happens, we win a lot when we check raise. Yeah, that was kind of built into the thought process there. Along uh, along with another thing, which is like, if Phil does happen to have a deuce, I don't expect a three bet too frequently. And if a club comes, we get to win a much bigger pot a lot of the time. And, and we probably shut down if we check raise and get called unless we improve. Like we probably don't bluff the river almost ever because I think we're folding out everything but the nut flush draw and a deuce. And maybe if he somehow has the king X of clubs, which fair enough, but I think everything else is like fours are folding pocket sevens, which are weirdly played are folding. I think all that kind of stuff is just folding. Probably don't shut down on a king, but other than that. Okay. Maybe not yeah. a king. That's fair. Although a weird story to check raise a king, but you know, Negranu has been known to do such things. Yeah, I'm coming around to the check raise. I like it more as we continue to talk about it. I would check raise big though. Oh yeah. For, um, just to try and lock in like the no three bet and also make sure we do our damage in terms of driving folds here on this street. Agreed. Yeah, folding out all the clubs now come, feels like a lot more realistic and valuable if we do it this way too, rather than leading for 80% of the pot or something. Yeah, agreed. Although for what it's worth, like if I had not clubs, I would totally lead here. 
um, because I wouldn't want to fold out the clubs through a check raise. But I don't think spot though, like you're saying, you know, like 10 high versus ace high is really, really different here. Oh yeah, totally. And I, I think that it, people make mistakes against that sort of differentiation, which is why it's incentivized. Can you elaborate on that? Uh, well, we were talking about how like we can maybe get clubs which barrel like Jack X, Queen X high to fold with a check raise, which is really valuable when we have 10, seven of clubs and really not valuable when we have a seven of clubs. But with ASIM of clubs, we still potentially want to try and derive some fold equity against hands in Phil's range and also build a pot in case we, you know, make a flush. So I would not check raise, but instead just lead large here. Because I, I think if we lead sizably, we still get called by almost all club draws. Yeah, makes sense. All right, well, Nagano. Maybe he's considering check raise because he starts with check and um, Phil Helmy's checks back, which I think is wise at this point. Um, yeah, I'm locked in on know, Phil with his holding. You know, I, I, I don't think any of us really think he should continue to, to bet here because it's, you know, he's already kind of overplaying his hand, you could say. Um, yeah. It's a large flop raise. You know, I, you know, I think it's, there's a case for his flop raise, but yeah, I, I think if you do, I don't, I don't think he should keep barreling here on the king. The king just sucks. Like, cause now he has no kicker. And also he's dead to, not dead, but he needs a four. Like his queen's no good if his opponent has a king. So I definitely get the check back. I think you have to think Daniel's pretty wide and won't raise you too much to want a barrel here. This is all making me not like the raise on the flop even more. I mean, I feel like we have a higher expected value in this hand, allowing Daniel to barrel off rather than having to make these types of decisions as the aggressor on the turn where it clearly makes a lot of sense to everybody here that we would check a four. The thing about that is it's also quite face up. Like would Helmuth often check a deuce? Probably not. He's probably barreling a deuce, right? Or if he has a club draw, he's probably barreling that. So he's essentially locked into having a four or a strangely played pocket pair, which I don't like being in that position if I'm Phil against a thinking player like Daniel Legrano clearly is. And this all is derived from raising the flop and putting ourselves in this position. And I know we have to to make these decisions based on where we are now, but I'd like to reevaluate previous decisions and see if we could have come to a different conclusion otherwise. And this feels like a problem to me. Yeah, I think the fact that you can't barrel is evidence against raising the flop. But I also think Daniel missed his biggest opportunity to exploit the flop raise, which was a three bet. And so sure. I think from Phil, he would probably consider this a success where he's like, yeah, I got to like, I probably would have got some folds from Daniel's range and then I get a flush draw to just call and then check and I get to just play rivers pretty well because I'm probably folding on clubs and I might call on non-clubs. Have you guys heard Phil Helmuth use the word range? I think I have. Okay. He was singing that song with Home on the Range that time in the karaoke bar. I remember that. No, he doesn't have enough joy to sing Oh, that no, song. no, no. He, the barbecue, free-range chicken. He talked about free-range chicken. He did. He did. He talked about how he didn't like it, and then he spat on the waiter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And then he, yeah, he blamed the waiter for, yeah. for the chicken. Um, he doesn't like us. <laughs> no, he does not. I was trying to loop in shooting range somehow, and I just couldn't think of it. Next time. Yeah. It's a good thing to practice before Murder Island. Uh, yeah, there you go. Um, we got a river, kind of an interesting river, kind of a, well, it's the ace of clubs. So the board is two of clubs, four of clubs, two of hearts, turn king of diamonds, river ace of clubs. And so Negranu has made his flush. And Phil Helmuth has had two pretty bad cards come for him. Um, after raising the flop. Um, I don't know. What do we like from Negrano here? It seems like kind of tough to find a bluff here for him, to be honest. Like mm, five, I was going to say five, three, but that comes in too. Three, six, or um, maybe some like five, six five six maybe like six seven of hearts or something that he gets pretty ambitious with um it's really, but it's i don't think you could bluff. like float sorry go ahead sorry I, I interrupted you that's my bad but it is tough to find a bluff um but it's also tough to imagine phil betting any hands that he played this way and giving us any value that way i think it's kind of one of those trying to figure out the lesser of two evil spots and i think everything's gonna suck is, I mean, it's nice to make a flush, but everything's going to suck as far as uh, what's the best decision perspective from Negrano on this river. No, I, I still think he should bet, um, but I, I just think the like the lack of available bluffs that like we kind of agree on should maybe mean he should size down here at this point. Um, yeah. This goes back a little bit to like if you reverse engineer the hand. I mean, this spot is almost impossible, it feels like, to get value when this ace of clubs comes, right? And this is why I think we all like, the, one of the reasons anyway, which went unsaid, but why we like the three bet on the flop, right? Because it means we get to maintain initiative in the hand. We get to build fold equity as well as a pot on the turn for when we get there on the river, it's more natural for us to keep firing rather than now we suddenly fire out of nowhere if we lead or we check raise. I mean, whatever we do, it's so strong. It's just, I mean, I don't know if there's a way to get value on the river, no matter how Negrano plays it against this hand that Phil has, but, but yeah. almost against almost every hand, it's hard for Negrano to get value, I think. The fact that it's an ace and a king definitely makes it really shitty for our flushes. It'd be way better for it to be, you know, the nine and then like the eight of clubs on the river. Um, and then I think we we can definitely get a value bet in um, and possibly get called by 4x. But yeah, I think in these spots, like, I think we have kind of two good options. One is to bet really small, just as sort of like a, I almost always have it here, so I'm giving a really good price. Or to bet on the larger side, as sort of like what I consider to be kind of like fake polarization, where you bet a size as if you're polarized and you sort of make your opponent curious, thinking like, oh, well, if this is like a polarized raise and I have a or polarized bet, I have a bluff catcher, it's like I have a good chance of winning. 
Um, that's typically what I would do in these spots, but you know, I'm not sure if it'll work as well against Phil. Um, I think it works really well against kind of above or like experienced rec players. <laughs> I don't know if you want to loop the people who just <laughs> that category. The, the people who just figured out that hero calling is sometimes profitable and it feels really good. Those people, because or the people who like people who have been playing poker for long enough and been around poker tables long enough, they they understand the concept of polarization and they know that big bets are polarized or like quote unquote, they are polarized, but they don't, they're not good enough to like really think through a spot and say like, is this actually a spot where my opponent has a lot of bluffs that they would bluff with this size? That makes sense. So sign me up for an overbet. I don't hate it. It also gives us a chance to actually get called by Phil if he's thinking about blockers at all with the queen of clubs in his hand. I mean, it with I don't exactly know what Phil's range is with the line that he took, but assuming that it is relatively face up as it looks as though it is, this may be one of his better bluff catchers with the queen of clubs and the four. Uh, also, of course, blocking four is full that's strangely played, which could potentially be part of Negrano's range with an overbet on the river. Yeah, I I prefer the I don't know. I I, I would go with a block sizing and just kind of like be a little bit more theoretical here. And yeah, I don't know. It's just so hard like for us to have any kind of bluff here. Like five five six was like the one hand that was mentioned, and that probably doesn't always take this line. Um, you know, I, I would expect that to play you know, possibly more aggressively on the flop. Um, yeah, and maybe maybe sometimes find a fold on the flop. So I, I would like something like a third pot here. I think I'm in your camp. I, I think I like the smaller bet sizing too. Also because, you know, it is a paired board and we have the 10 high flush. But it's easy to respond to a uh, to a raise when we bet smaller than when we bet bigger, and so, like it's a, I think it's a really straightforward play if if we bet a third of the pot and we get raised by Phil. I think we just yeah maybe, maybe sometimes we induce as well you know with um, if if Phil like thinks that we're kind of capped at one pair here based on our you know the sizing on the river. Um, you know, maybe maybe sometimes he goes for it. Probably not as much, but from like his particular playing style, but it could happen. Agreed. All right. So Daniel bets two thousand into forty five hundred. Um, so I like. Yeah, a little less than half pot. And Phil's left with the decision. Um, he does have the queen of clubs, so he's like blocking some value, but I don't know. Yeah, it's just, it's pretty hard for me to come up with hands that Negrano is bluffing. And, you know, I've, I'm not like a heads up specialist, so maybe there are a lot more hands out there that 
um, Negron is betting here that he's turning into a bluff. But um, yeah, it just seems really tough to find for me. Agreed. I mean, I, I don't think there's any, I don't think Phil should consider calling here. I don't think that can be the consideration. I think he, I think he could consider raising as a bluff or he could, because mm -hmm. he's got premier blockers or he should just fold. Yep, I agree with that. Yeah, if I'm Phil here, like a question I normally ask myself in game is, does my opponent think I would do X with the hand that I have? So if Phil asks himself, like, does Daniel think I would call 2000 to 4,500 with a four? I'd be a little bit worried that the answer is yes, <laughs> uh, which probably means we should fold. Yeah, I, you know, maybe this is the best um, bluff raise candidate that we have here. Like, if we have the king of clubs, we're not going to want to raise. And yeah, like the four is not a hand that Daniel will be um, bluffing with. So yeah, blocking. A really strong flush could be could be a good hand to raise here. It what do you be, think, but, or, Yeah, what do you guys think? But Negranu's not the best bluff candidate when we're we're talking about bluff candidates. Like known calling station, <laughs> Daniel Negranu might not be the guy. But tight, but tight on the river doesn't doesn't bluff much on the river. Phil Hallmuth might be then might be the guy. You know, they, yeah. they're both their images are such that you would think like like Phil raising on the river. This is what it worked against Antonio. He did it a few times. And Antonio almost always folded, uh, and fair enough. But you know, and then eventually Phil stopped bluffing, and Antonio started calling. Like it, it went really badly for Antonio. But um, Phil, like Phil raising on the river, should be terrifying to Daniel with even the hand he has. Yeah, I mean, actually, I mean, ultimately, I, I was kind of tongue in cheek there. I agree with James's point. Queen four with the Queen of Clubs may literally be the best bluff candidate that we have. Yeah, mm -hmm. blocking the Queen X uh, flushes and blocking four is full, and. The, the only issue is that we're telling a weird story, but we're Phil Helmuth. We tell weird stories all the time. It's fine. So if we're going to raise, and or we think this is a, a river that we could potentially raise and sometimes get good hands to fold, I think it's a fine thing to do, and I couldn't, I couldn't kill Phil for it. I still think probably plan A is just to fold. I think it's probably yeah. best just to let it go. I mean, the problem is we're still basically targeting a flush here, right? When Daniel suddenly leads the ace of clubs on the river, I mean, he mostly has flushes, yeah. right? Or so maybe a straight. Yeah, I I think five. he mostly has ace highs. Really interesting, because you because he just thinks that Phil's going to check back all the, like ace high is good enough because Phil's going to check back anyway. Which yeah, he's going to check back turn a lot. Um, I you know again I'm I'm not I'm not hmm. an expert at heads up, so I could be wrong. No, that's fair. That's interesting. If that's true, then we should definitely raise this. This is a great hand to raise. I'm not convinced that that's true. I don't know. The more I think, I, I, I think they're, it's certainly a, a piece of the range most likely. Uh, we don't have any evidence. To like, that that's yeah. Really so you Could think be. Daniel's folding like ace 10 to the flop raise? Uh, no, mostly not. Yeah. M mostly not. I, I just, the, the, the river lead is what is the most disqualifying for me as far as having an ace. Like, if we're, it, we're all sitting here saying that the best play for Phil to do is probably to fold a four. Like, what are we trying to accomplish by leading an ace, really? We're just hoping he miracled the king on the turn and checked back. I I think Phil, like, we're, we're kind of putting him at a point of indifference with if he has a four or, like, fives through eights that he limped. Um, but, yeah. I yeah, I mean, like... it's, it's thin betting an ace, I guess. I think we're also, we've had a lot of time to think about the fact that 
Phil should fold here. I think when we river an ace, it takes a very locked in player to say like, hmm, maybe I should just check this. Um, so I think practically when I'm thinking about this from Phil's standpoint, I am assuming that Daniel will bet a reasonable amount of his aces here. But, you know, I, I definitely agree with you guys that this is clearly like the candidate. So if we're going to bluff, this is one of our first bluffs. But part of the reason we didn't call is because we just felt like there were going to be really few bluffs in Daniel's range. And bluffs in Daniel's range are a really important incentive for us to do bluffing ourselves. Yeah. Because it's like, you know, let's say what we need, um, we need this to be a bluff like 25% of the time or so, um, a little bit less to call. But also if we raise, that's just like 20% of the time where like we almost always win against that range of bluffs. So the smaller that is, the more we are just reliant on Daniel folding made hands. And I'm just, I, I just try and avoid those spots for the most part. Um, but yeah, I will. I would definitely not. If Phil like made a big raise here, I would not look at that and say like this is a punt. I think it's very defensible. I guess the line that Negranu chose just feels a little too strong for me to want to actually make this play, even though we do have as, as you guys were saying, like James was saying anyway, like probably the best bluffing hand we can have. Maybe that's enough. Maybe that just sort of forces, at least for me, like to want to pull the trigger because it's so hard to be in that situation and actually show up with the best, the best blockers you can have. But, um, but I'd be concerned that Negrano's range is too value heavy and, um, and heavy enough of in, in its value that it's, it's strong enough in its value that, that we may not succeed in getting the folds we want to get. I'm throwing in the muck here. Yeah, that so is, unfortunately, oh, did you want to chime in? No, I was just going to say I agree. I mean, look, we, we can theorize about how these blockers are great and everything, but when you're sitting there at the table and you're making a decision in 30 seconds, this is almost always a fold, like almost entirely a fold. Yeah. Yeah, Phil folds. I think a raise would have been more fun. And um, yeah, he like he had a decent candidate to do it. But yeah, if, if Negranu like, doesn't have enough bluffs for his sizing um you know it's, it's going to be harder for that um our raise to be profitable and it's like you know we're risking a lot yeah james i i really enjoyed talking about this hand i'm i'm sort of impressed that you chose it because it's it strikes me as probably it was fairly innocuous like did it generate any kind of discussion no, no, I was, I was just like skipping through a few, a few hands and yeah, I thought this one was pretty interesting because Phil like takes kind of an interesting line on the flop and then, yeah, it doesn't seem like Negreanu can have any bluffs on the river. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the last Phil Hammond hand we talked about was one of the most insane hands I've ever heard. <laughs> They like, um, yeah, he like gets into this three bet turn spot with Antonio and then 
checks the river dark like and uh like pairs his ace on like this paired board and i don't know it's, antonio goes all in and he calls and the best part is that helmuth says that he was going to bluff the river if he didn't hit his ace when he checks the turn like uh dark or whatever he checks the river dark anyway classic phil we actually did that hand as well and, and oh, yeah. we, certainly, we certainly highlighted that that hypocrisy. <laughs> It's hilarious. Uh, so we've obviously alluded to the show, The Poker Guys, and I'm sorry, I actually meant to speak more about it at the beginning of the show. Obviously, we'll put everything in the show notes, but I mean, you guys have been doing it for seven or eight years now. How has the show changed over time? Like, what was it when it started? What is it today? Uh, we give less of a shit now. That's kind of how our show has changed. <laughs> not that we don't try to do our best analysis. It's it's we give less of a shit if we are doing what other podcasts do or what is expected of a, a poker analysis show. As we talked about, I think before we began recording here, like Jonathan and I spend 10 to 20 minutes at the beginning of each show talking about whatever the hell we kind of want to talk about and often completely unrelated to poker. Always, uh, I would say. We have a, a piece of audience that loves it. There are some people who listen and skip everything until the poker analysis, but basically we just get to, like the thing that's changed the most for, for me personally, and I think Jonathan would agree, is that we, we no longer are beholden to anybody. We just do what we want. We feel happy about that. I think that's right. Like we used to, I used to feel beholden, not necessarily to people, but to the format and to like doing a good show and doing a good poker podcast and analysis. And of course we still do all of that, but I mean, I'd rather just fuck around and I do a lot and it's great. And uh, like, like we did a, we, we did a show that came out. Um, I, know, I don't know when this is, this actual episode is coming out that you guys were recording right now. It's cause it's going to be episode 200, but, um, but we put out a show for, from one recording a few days ago where, in the first 10 minutes, Grant mentions that he thinks the best Hall & Oates song is Rich Girl. And I immediately respond by saying he should shoot himself in the head. You know, and then we argue about which is the best Hall & Oates song for a solid six minutes, which then got a bunch of Twitter replies from our audience telling us how wrong we were both and that some other song is better. And, and, and so it went. And I listened to that uh, after it came out and I just laughed hard. Like it was one of my favorite openings we've ever did because it was just really, really funny. And this is what, this is what we do now. We, just, we, we have a really good time. That's, that's our priority. And while we care about the poker analysis when we're in it, I think we care about having a good time more. I certainly do. Uh, another thing that's changed for me, especially is I, you know, when we started the show, I was a professional poker player and I would say Jonathan was too, right? Still at yeah. the time. And now I'm certainly semi-professional at most because of the show and, and what we've been able to accomplish with sponsorship and stuff like that. And, um, and the show now, instead of being a place for me to put my poker knowledge, is where I take poker knowledge from. My poker chops stay, stay strong from talking poker with Jonathan at high levels, whereas before, the show was a way to divulge my poker knowledge out into the world. That's exactly right for me, too. Like, There's no way I'm not getting better because we do our show. And in the old days, it was, okay, what do you think about this? Why do you think this guy, why do you think it's a bad play for him to raise the flop? And I would go through like the 10 things that I know are the reasons, and I would sort of say them because, you know, and I was sort of doing it for our audience so they could learn. And, and we're so miles past that. Now it's like, what's a spot that we don't understand? And let's see if we can figure it out. And that's almost every show that we do now. Yeah, I feel similarly about our show's transition as well, where 
you know, when when Zach and I started the show, I was uh, well, let me look. Sorry. He was 14 years old. I'm trying to, I'm honestly trying to think of how old I would have been. Uh, no, I was 21. So, but I was, you know, just a couple months into good answer. My life career, I've been playing online for a long time, but you know, it's my first time playing in like one, two, and two, five games against the sort of folks that you uh, see in those games. And we figured it was a good format to just kind of, you know, we felt like there was, you could go really far in terms of the degree to which you gave real thought and attention to the types of mistakes that were being made in those games. And it was a great learning journey for us. And now, you know, now I'm definitely in my sort of like losing poker knowledge phase <laughs> where every time we, I'm not playing very much at all anymore. And every time we record, I feel like I know less and less than I did the episode before, but I, I really enjoy that it keeps me kind of engaged in the game. Um, and I feel like when I do get a chance to play poker, I'm way, way sharper than I would be otherwise if I weren't doing the show still. Absolutely. And, you know, I don't know what you guys have been doing, but during the pandemic, Jonathan and I, neither of us have been really venturing out at all. No live poker whatsoever, a little bit of online, but I don't derive the same level of joy from online as I do from live. And um, with with other sources of income through Poker Guys stuff, it doesn't feel as necessary to, to seek that out. So to maintain, to keep the muscle strong throughout the pandemic has been very useful. So you guys have like a commune kind of thing going on? A commune? Yeah. Um, I make the bread. Jonathan <laughs> fetches the herbs from the garden and, and my wife makes tea and uh, we all wear robes all day. Yeah. It's a fun commune. That sounds nice. I've been looking into a commune myself. <laughs> the, the yurt is more comfortable than it looks from the outside. <laughs> yeah. No, we have a, you know, like a pod, you know, like a, a pandemic pod is just me, Jonathan, my wife, and my yeah. four-month-old child. So, so we live in different places, yeah. to be clear. Uh, but Grant comes over here twice a week or so, and we record Poker Guy stuff. And I go over there home once in a while and hang out with him and his baby and his wife. And that's it. We yell at each other some. It's good times. Yeah, yell about sports, yell about poker, whatever. Oh, that's awesome. James, when was the last time I saw you in person? Um, December 2019. Yeah. I've never felt closer to you. <laughs> is, there, is there anything else you wanted to mention? Sure. One thing we want to mention is uh, we do have a book. It's called How Can He Fold? Uh, you can get it at thepokerguys.net. You can get it on Amazon. It's 37 tournament hands that we broke down in kind of our classic style, except in written form. And we think it kind of uh, melds analysis and fun in the way that our podcast does in a way that is fun to buy for $30 on Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, it's cool too, because it's um, really big hands. It's like, you know, world series of poker, final table hands, um, really big money spots, all tournament hands, as Grant said, and we arranged the 37 hands so that they get progressively more complicated. So in the beginning, it's relatively interesting spots. If you're like if listeners of your show for a long time, we'll find them interesting, I'm sure, but not like, blow them away but like the last several hands are break your brain level confusing and hard i mean for us let alone for you know the guys who like 
wrote this. Uh, so, so we think we really like it as something that sort of escalates in um, in sophistication as it goes on. So we think it's it's it works really well for a reader in that way. That's cool. That's yeah, a really cool concept. Yeah, um, and I think like they, they don't all end in a shocking fold. I no, assume. no, that's uh, that's that's more of like a snippet from from you know a couple of them. And I think it was the title of of our podcast and video from back in 2015 or so, which is still our favorite fold of all time. Oh, I think it's, isn't that what, it's impossible? Oh, no, you're right. It's impossible is our favorite fold yeah. of all time. That's a different one. I don't know if you guys know the hand with a guy named Yuf Benden Bygart, who makes just this incredible fold on the EPT against Ben Wolanowski. I think yeah. it was in 2012 or 2013 that it actually happened. Yeah, ace nine, deuce, two club board. He puts in two thirds of a stack and then folds top two. And when two thirds of a stack isn't even that much. Yeah. I mean, like they're relatively short. It's, it's the greatest fold I've ever seen. He's looking like it's like a flush draw. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> there is a flush draw in the hand that's that's a third player that's out, but yeah, Wilanowski has a set of aces. Yeah. And, uh, there's some there's some verbal tells involved, which makes it fun, you know. Oh, school. cool. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah that's pretty epic. I think I, I think I think like going through the process of like writing it down, like I don't know, gives you like a little more time than like the stuff that you know, we do like kind of on the fly. Like, I think our analysis analysis is reasonable, but um, yeah, like I'm sure taking the time to, to write it out in the book, like gives you a little more time to think about it and really get into the weeds. So that's pretty cool. Yep, we had fun writing it. it took a lot longer than expected because, you know, like you said, you, we got into the weeds and redid every hand 10 times. Yeah. I wrote a section on combinatorics that I expected to take me 20 minutes to write. And it took me four days of like rewriting over and over again because it's actually a very complex issue to try to explain succinctly. But all of that came out in what we think is a really fun, entertaining book. Yeah. Yeah. We're really pleased with it. Really proud of it. And you know what? The five star reviews on Amazon back us up. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, speaking of five-star reviews, um, we have sort of a new tradition, which is we should wrap it up with a game of lot and thinks. Uh, you guys, you, do you know the rules? Sure. Yeah, we're familiar. All right. So you guys are going to lot and thinks. And James will be lotting. Okay. The question is this: There was a movie in 2017 called 10 colon murder island and the question is what does james think the rotten tomatoes rating is for 10 comma or sorry 10 colon murder island are we doing an auction yeah i think we got to do an auction yeah all right you want to start or are we going up or down boy i i guess we should start up we should start high and go down i think okay so we're buying above yeah. All right. Flying above. All right. You want to start or should I? You can start. James, are you locked in? Um, give me a second. Ten um, Island. <laughs> That's a weird name. <laughs> is it the number ten or is ten written out? Ten is written out. Okay. Oh, that changes my whole thing. <laughs> Hold on, I gotta put it back into the spreadsheet. <laughs> All right. I I start. have my number. I'll start. Go ahead. 58. 42. <laughs> 37. 22. 21. Oh, I can't believe you went lower. Uh, I thought, I guess I have to buy. I'll take, I'll take over 21. I can't believe I said 22. 
Yeah, I I put 35. Yes. James, I thought you had taste. I was betting on you having taste. I, I no, it's the I'm betting on the Rotten Tomatoes score, not on like I was I was doing a lot of things it. with Rotten Tomatoes. We didn't yeah. agree to doing a double meta reverse Rotten <laughs> Things. Uh, was I close? It's not what I would rate it. It's what I think the reviewers would rate. It. Exactly. <laughs> why fair. don't you have more faith in the general population? This is why we're losing society. Now, really would you story. amend that review up or down if I told you that this was a Lifetime movie? Oh. Uh, Whoa. Murder Island on Lifetime. <laughs> I no, had Lifetime. down. <laughs> had the perfect marriage. <laughs> I don't know. It's like interesting. You're selecting among like the population of people who like went to review something. Well, are we talking user score or critic score? Because Rotten Tomatoes, obviously, it's critic score. Yeah. So oh, then... I was thinking user score. User what? score. <laughs> Go to IMDb if you want user score. User score. <laughs> for, for what it's oh, worth, I won, and I still think this is invalid. For what it's worth, there is no. There is no tomato, like there's no critic score. There's zero oh. reviews on this movie. Well, this okay, is, so I did it right. Enough. Fair enough. Well, we don't know. This I mean, it's, they call it's, a false it's not really about operation. what it actually is. It's just about what James thinks it is. But the or audience was 55%. Grant and not Jonathan thinks James thinks it is. Um, Wait, what? Too meta. <laughs> <laughs> there is a review. Um, and the review is called Lifetime Ruins Everything from September 2nd, 2020. Uh, so it looks like the critics are so far not in favor. So they're under, under that review's assumption, the original whatever version of this, whether it be a book or a different movie from Japan or something, was actually excellent. And then Lifetime ruined it. That's, that's what I'm getting from that review. Well, it's ripped from the headlines. This it's not ripped. It's not like an adaptation. This is, you know, it's like there was a murder island, <laughs> and Lifetime is doing their their female friendly spin on it. Oh, okay, obviously. Well, we can have a, a nice little watch party next time we all get together. It's only an hour and twenty two minutes, so I thought oh, it was very doable. Yeah, right. there are commercials. An hour and the audience score was fifty five. <laughs> So maybe it was. Good. I should have got higher. <laughs> All right. All right. I would have won anyway. It's okay. No matter how you went, I would have won. I mean, I it was a moral victory for me today. I guess if I it's put one, it's like funnier. So like anyway. I just think it's weird that it was called Ten Murder Island, not just Murder <laughs> Island. Why is there a ten in there? Because there were ten murders on the island. Well, watch and find out. Yeah, you're right. You're right. That's the mystery. That's what brings you in.